It's a warm summer night. Man, you wish you had an air conditioner. Instead, you opt to open your windows to let some of the marginally cooler air come in. After tossing and turning in the heat, you finally drift off. You're awakened by an unbelievable pain in your chest, and you open your eyes to see the devil. His black eyes are wide, and you can't escape his stench. But soon you forget all of that as he drives the knife into you again and again. You try to scream, but he moves quickly and slashes your throat. During the summer of 1985, residents of Los Angeles and the surrounding area were living a nightmare. Their friends, neighbors, and families were being targeted at random and subjected to brutal attacks that many would not survive. Today, I'll tell you their harrowing tales. I'm Laura, I'm here with my best friend Marina, and this is Grim. In the eternal words of Ash and Elena, fresh air is for dead people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, you will not ever open your windows ever again. Okay. After see, this. I actually have a window that's in my bedroom and all you have to do is climb up my little cellar thing onto the roof and then you could just open it and step right into my bedroom. So mm-hmm. I don't like to leave that one open mm-hmm. at night. I do. So <laughs> I'm going to die. Yeah. But. You're not going to, you're not going to like this then. No. no. Uh, so with that, I'll start with attention, advertencia, warning, advertimento, advertisere. <laughs> warning. Okay. <laughs> it's so important. I did lots of research. It's so important that I give a trigger warning at the beginning of this case. I like how you didn't start with English for the word warning. (laughs) No, I wanted to do that last. Um, But in all seriousness, so I also did Toy Box Killer where I gave lots of uh, trigger warnings there. This is, I would almost say more so just because in the Toy Box Killer, I really tried not to detail any of the acts of the crime itself. But here, I'm really going to take us through what happened to each person. Um, so please listen at your own risk. It is genuinely disturbing. Um, you, Marina, have no choice. <laughs> you have to stay here. Super. Thank you. Yes, yes. I did try to leave for Toy Box Killer as well. Yes, but you, you did. did not permit me to do no. so. No. And you know what? You're okay. Yeah. You have some nightmares and you have to see a therapist now, but <laughs> it's fine. But it's fine. I'm, yeah, I'm still here. Yes. There will be uh, lots of, I, I foresee lots of random jokes in this because it is so heavy and I, I genuinely forgot all the details behind this that even rereading for this case, I was overwhelmed. So get ready. Yay. <laughs> um, this is an incredibly well-known and documented case, but my main source of information was a book written in the late nineties by a man who actually interviewed many of the victims as well as the night stalker himself. This unbelievably in-depth book is the night stalker by Philip Carlo. If you aren't intimidated by a 600 pager, I highly recommend reading this. And um, that one was also on your bookshelf yes, it was. prior to the start. And of I have Grimm, read it correct. before. I ha- this, so this was my second time reading it. Casual. Um, and for those of you on the Discord, I gave you a little sneak, pre- a sneak peek uh, preview and sent a picture. This is the book I was reading with the uh, Church of Satan. So if you're wondering, it's this case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do recommend reading it. it. 
because this is a long case and I still didn't, I won't share as many details as that author has. So, um, that's wild. Yes. Now, before I tell you some of those details, mm. we'll do our fun Patreon shout outs. Oh, oh. So the first today is Ashlyn J. Ashlyn J. We love you. We love you. Next up is Jen G. Jen G. We love you. We love you, Jen. Then Sharky. <laughs> Sharky. <laughs> Sharky. We love and you. And Shark Week's coming up, right? Oh, it's appropriate. It? Yeah. Part, Soon. Maybe that's why. I don't know. Soon. Maybe. Okay. Soon. Well, there's a lot of blood in this case. So. Oh, boy. <laughs> Uh, next is Jennifer S. Jennifer Woo! S. We Jennifer, love you. We love you. And Jessica S. Maybe really. Jessica we don't S. know. <laughs> Probably Jessica not. Jessica S. We Jessica, love you. Jessica, we love you. Okay. Now to ruin your lives. Okay. <laughs> Seriously, thank you. As always, if you want to subscribe to Patreon, you get bonus episodes, all that sort of stuff. You can do the, the Discord that we mentioned. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So and actually, we have um, some of our gremlins in the Discord share cases that yes. they want to hear or that they're hearing about or um, current events, current news, and they each will say, Oh, I haven't seen that. I want to look into that. Thanks so much for telling me. So, um, if you're really into talking about true crime to like, we're your people. Yes. Yes. Thank you. That is all. And, and memes. We like memes. We love memes. <laughs> all right. We're going to get into it. Go ahead. Ruin my day. I so will. 79 year old Jenny Vincow lived alone in her apartment in Glassell Park, a small low-income community in Northeast LA. She lived on the first floor in apartment number two. Her son, Jack, lived in apartment number nine upstairs. She had lived with her other son, Manny, in Brooklyn until a few years prior, but she'd moved west at Jack's insistence. Manny had some mental problems, as Jack called it, and unfortunately, that resulted in Manny verbally and sometimes physically abusing his mother. Aww. On the warm night of June 27th, 1984... Jenny had gone to bed with her windows open, thankful for the screens that kept the bugs out. Oh, Jenny. Yep, she didn't know. What she didn't realize was how easy it was for someone to remove that screen and silently enter the one bedroom. Jenny, who had been asleep, was suddenly awoken when she was stabbed in the chest with a six-inch hunting knife. I cannot imagine the disorientation. Yes, exactly. Like my husband yelled my name the other day in the middle of the night. And I was like, what? He's like, right. your son's calling your name. I was like, oh, <laughs> and I didn't know literally what planet yeah. I was on. So to wake up with a knife in mm-hmm. my chest. Yep. She, her response was to scream, which seems fair. Right. But her attacker kept stabbing. She fought with all of her five, 990 pound frame, but she was no match. He put his hand over her mouth, wrenched her head back and sliced her throat from ear to ear with such violence that he nearly decapitated her. Oh my God. Although she was already dead, he then stabbed her in the chest three more times just for the thrill of it. That's overkill. Literally. When he was done, he was parched. So he relaxed for an hour or so, had some water and cleaned up, leaving before the sun peaked above the horizon. Wow. That afternoon, Jack went to check on his mom, as he did every day. He had bought her some chicken McNuggets. Those were her favorite. Even better, he'd gotten the air conditioning fixed in his car and was excited to take her for a drive to cool down. Another favorite of hers. Oh. Walking up to the door, he first noticed that the screen on her window was missing. Strange. He went to unlock the door to let himself in, then realized it was already open. Immediately concerned, he walked in slowly, calling for her. In only a few steps, he was in the bedroom, his eyes unbelieving, taking in the gruesome, bloody scene. He ran out of the apartment, literally screaming bloody murder. 
His landlord's landlords heard him and called 911 while Jack ran to his apartment and also called 911. So police arrived and taped off the crime scene. They observed Jenny's mangled body, noting the multiple stab wounds and lacerations. They also looked for fingerprints, coming up with nothing until they looked at the screen that had been removed from the window. On the frame of the screen, the investigator found four prints. Three of them were partially discernible. One was smudged. In Jenny's autopsy, the medical examiner took particularly in, particular interest on the wound, in the wounds on her neck. There were two, I'm like touching my neck as I'm reading this. There were two deep stab wounds, one on either side of her windpipe, connected by a very deep slash. Oh, this, this killer knew what he was doing. I'm just thinking that she was 79. You yep. think you think if your mother is 79, like you don't know how much time you have left with sure. her. You know, she, you know, she could live till she's 95. You mm-hmm. know, she could die the next day. But you yep. would never expect to just walk into that scene with no. chicken McNuggets in your hand. <laughs> exactly. And that's what so kills me about that detail was just what a normal, you're just thinking, I Oh, know. I'm just going to grab her, her favorite McNuggets. I'm going to take her in the car because it's air conditioned and nice. And I can't imagine what that scene looked like. Cause it was extremely violent and bloody. Wow. So fast forwarding a little bit on the night of March 17th, 1985. So a year, the next year, 22-year-old Maria Hernandez was driving home from dinner at her boyfriend's in Monterey Park, California still. She didn't know she was being watched. She got off the freeway to her exit at Rosemead. She didn't know she was being followed. She turned into the complex on Village Lane, then pulled into the garage at the condo she shared with her roommate, whose car was already there. Her roommate, 34-year-old Dale uh, Okazaki, was just two weeks shy of her 35th birthday. She had attended Pasadena City College, where she took a variety of different types of classes, including cake decorating, flower arranging, computer programming, and self-defense. How's that for a spread? (laughs) That is well-rounded. Yes. Well-rounded activities. She was an avid skier and a highly motivated woman. In fact, she had recently been promoted to traffic supervisor with LA County, which made sense because she had been working incredibly hard to save enough money to buy the condo with with Maria. Dale had a wonderful relationship with her parents and two siblings and had actually been out visiting them that evening before returning to the condo. Maria shut off the car, gathering her things, and got out. She walked to the door to the condo, hitting the button to shut the garage behind her, not realizing that her stalker had slipped in behind her. These are like all of my fears. This whole case is all of my fears completely realized i have literal nightmares where i'm trying Mm -hmm. to close my garage door and it won't close all the way and someone's like slowly walking up my driveway yep that's that's what's happening yep there were this i have this nightmare as well there were two locks on the door she had opened one and was starting on the other when she heard a noise behind her whipping around she screamed at the sight of a 22 pointed directly at her head She begged the intruder to spare her and raised her hands in desperate self-defense, but he ignored her. He shot. She dropped to the ground and he stepped over her unmoving body, opening the door and entering the condo. Dale had heard the commotion in the garage and was cowering behind the kitchen island. Once inside, the man stopped and waited. He knew she would feel the need to look. After a few moments, Dale cautiously peeked her head above the counter the killer didn't hesitate. He shot her directly in the head, killing her instantly. Oh my God. I don't like either when people just hone in on human nature to hunt them. Yes. I hate that. Yes. I give myself goosebumps reading this case. I'm curling up into a ball across the table. It's only going to get worse. I'm I'm sure. I know. Yeah. 
He turned and went back down the stairs, planning to leave his two victims for others to find. He was surprised when he saw Maria running down the street. Miraculously, when he had shot at her, the keys in her hand that she'd raised to protect herself had actually deflected the bullet. Oh my god. Instead of chasing her, he chose to retreat to his car and escape into the night. So she got away. Yep, she remained alive. Wow. Once he'd left, the traumatized Maria bravely re-entered the condo. She ignored the pain in her hand, desperate to find her roommate and see if she was okay. Oh, did she call 911 first? She, because she, Well, she ran upstairs first and would never forget seeing Dale's lifeless oh. body crumpled on the tile floor, surrounded by blood, and then immediately called the oh police. Oh my gosh. And then she called her boyfriend. Totally fair. Correct order. Made sense. I feel like I would call the police before I ran into the condo. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd run into the condo. Well, I don't think she could. She, this is, this oh, is. Oh, this in, is like 1985. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I think so she had to. She, she didn't have her uh, flip phone with no, her. No, she didn't. Damn. No. So police and paramedics quickly arrived, but confirmed Maria's fa- fear. Dale was dead. Mm-hmm. Maria was questioned for any details about her attacker and then taken to the hospital to treat the wounds on her hand. That's so crazy. Energized by the events at Dale and Maria's condo, the killer was not done for the night. He got back on the freeway, looking at the cars passing alongside him. It wasn't long before he spotted what he was looking for. 30-year-old Veronica Yu was on her way home from visiting a childhood friend, June Wang. Veronica had had lunch at June's house, and then later they'd taken June's 18-month-old out to dinner with them. June and Veronica were really close, having both been born in Taiwan and immigrating to America seven years earlier. As a law student, and you may know one, a thing or two about this, mm-hmm. Veronica cherished her sleep and was looking forward to arriving at her house in Monterey Park, where she lived with her parents, and catching some rest. But despite her fatigue, she was observant. As she turned off the main road onto the quieter side streets towards her parents' house, she noticed the Toyota following her. She pulled over and let him pass, trying to get a better look. The killer was annoyed at the complication and decided to find someone else. Oh my gosh. But Veronica wasn't done. She began following him. No, girl. Yeah, leave not, it be. No. When they and then even worse, when they came to a uh, stop at a red light a few blocks away, she pulled up next to him, opened her window, and demanded he tell her why uh, he was following her. Okay. See, I know. <laughs> I know how it ends. But like, this is not like a bad bitch situation. Like, leave it alone. Correct. Correct. He claimed he thought he knew her. She called his bullshit and told him she was calling the police. Mm-hmm. The killer jumped out of his car and over to hers. Oh, Veronica. Mm-hmm. Grabbing her and trying to pull her out through the window. She began screaming and thrashing away from him, making it impossible for him to get a hold of her. Why didn't she speed away? That's a great question. Okay. I actually don't know. Huh. I didn't think about that until you Maybe just said that. Maybe her car was in park and she couldn't coordinate her Maybe. mind. I, I would, think so. I would panic. Definitely. Yeah. Well, because then he tried to open the door, but it, that was locked. But at the same moment, he and Veronica both looked towards the passenger door, which was unlocked. This is straight out of my nightmares. He ran to the other side while Veronica tried to reach over and lock it. He was quicker. He opened the door, got in, and shot her at close range with his twenty-two first under her right arm, and then again in her lower back as she, sim- as she opened the door and tried to get out. Her stalker simply got out of the car, laughing, and returned to his Toyota, soon back on the freeway. Oh my god. He didn't see Jorge Gallegos just down the street, sitting in his uncle's Ford pickup. 
As soon as the man was gone, Jorge ran to help Veronica. Jorge's cousin, who had heard Veronica's screams for help from his apartment, had also witnessed the killer try to pull Veronica out of the car and had immediately called the police, so while the attack was still happening. The men tried in vain to keep her alive. The police arrived, clearing the scene and taking over with Veronica, but it was too late. As the officer tried to get a statement from her, she stopped breathing. Despite the medic's best efforts to resuscitate her, she was pronounced dead. I have two thoughts. One is that you are truly a psychopath if you are hunting multiple unrelated mm-hmm. individuals in one evening. Mm-hmm. Like that is the true mark of an evil satanic Absolutely. person. Yep. Um, and my second comment is if you have escaped being followed and somebody just leaves you be i'm not victim blaming yeah but do not go follow them especially in a world where you do not have a cell phone and you're not calling the police and you can't protect yourself and you can't your doors are unlocked i just i just i'm sure it never crossed her mind she was a very independent strong woman but um unfortunately that's no match for a gun um, and especially nowadays, like I won't even <gasps> no. like I won't even I see people flip each other off on no, the road. I'm like, any- you don't know. I told have I said this on this podcast? I've definitely told you where there's a story of someone who did something like someone actually cut them off. Like, in my opinion, they had every right to flip them off. Right. But she did. And then the guy like got behind her and shot through the car. And yeah. like, this is very upsetting. And shot her kid. <gasps> it went through and it no. hit her kid. Oh, my God. And literally my husband, because I may have a little bit of trouble with flipping people off and getting really mad. And my Laura. husband was like, it, so he said the same thing. And then he said, imagine if that, like, you don't know, that could be you. That could be your dogs is what he said in the backseat. And yeah. I was like, all right, that's fair. That's fair. Like there's no, there's just, just don't do it. Yeah. Don't follow no. people. Don't, though I am, I do think that I would know if I was being followed because yeah. if I'm getting closer to home and yep. people have been following multiple turns, yep. I will turn down the street that's not mine, which actually makes me laugh when somebody else turns down the street <laughs> that's not mine. And then they like pull into a house and I keep driving because, um, yeah, they're that. like, they're pre-following me. <laughs> Are they going to my house? <laughs> oh, that was nice to laugh. Yeah. But if you think you're being followed, um, you should not drive to your house. And if you are within the vicinity of a police station, just drive right to your police station. She did. I left this detail out, but of course now I'm going to tell you that she did actually, she was looking for a police car and all that, but should have continued with that path and not. I'm so sad for her that she didn't just drive home. I'm really sad Uh, for her. I know. Well, honestly, that might not have worked for her either because I think he would have followed her. So I don't think she had a good outcome uh, either yeah. way in this case. Well, if she just didn't turn around and follow him. Yeah, but I know. Sorry, Veronica. R.I.P. I know. R.I.P. Girl. Mm. All right. So two murders on the same day quickly caught the attention of the L.A. Sheriff's Homicide Department, which consisted of five teams of 12 to 16 detectives. They worked in a rotating cycle. On this night, it was Deputy Gil Carrillo who got the call. A man with presence at 6'4 and 280 pounds. Damn. That's a weird way to say that, but 280, <laughs> 280. Earlier um, you said like five, nine, 99. And I was like, they're 590 pounds. <laughs> and then my brain caught up. Yeah. All right. We're just having trouble with the numbers here. It's hard. Anyway, Gil was a family man. His wife, Pearl, uh, supported his challenging career and stayed home with their three children, Renee, Tiffany, and Gil Jr. Gil was a Vietnam vet, having served at the height of the Tet Offensive and receiving a Medal of Valor and a Bronze Star. 
With LA County, he had worked over 300 murder cases and at just 34 was the youngest detective in the department. Wow. So awesome guy. Gil started his investigation by going to Maria's condo to look at the scene. When he entered the garage, he spotted a dark blue ACDC baseball hat laying on the floor. Like with Jenny's case the year before, investigators looked for fingerprints, but here they could find none other than Dale and Maria's. When, Will, when Gil went back outside, a woman approached him. Gilbert, is that you? He was confused since no one called him by his full name. When he got closer, he realized she looked familiar. She told him that she was Gil's sister's friend and Maria's mother. Oh so my gosh. That, that hit Gil really hard. This tragedy was now personal. Gil arranged to go to the hospital to interview Maria. The brave woman told him she had no known enemies and was not involved in any situations that could result in something like this, like a love triangle between her and Dale. And that's what Gil had maybe originally thought. Mm. She did tell him she got a good look at her attacker. So Gil connected her with a police artist to generate a sketch. I would imagine if you were attacked by someone, you would spend a lot of time trying to figure out if there was somebody with a vendetta because you wouldn't know whether it was random or not. Absolutely. And that's, you know, when Gil was assessing the scene and having seen 300 murder cases, I feel like you have a gut feel for some of this stuff. And he was just like, this makes no sense. Why? Why would someone target these women? Now, in the meantime, ballistics had confirmed that the bullets that killed Dale and Veronica had both likely come from the same gun. Worried he had a serial killer on the loose, Gil called the best of the best, Frank Salerno. Frank, a 46-year-old veteran of law enforcement, more than earned his nickname of the Bulldog. Oh, I love that. Yep. In high school, he was a great student and athlete, earning a scholarship to Notre Dame. After graduating, he turned to LA, returned to LA and built his reputation at the sheriff's department over a number of cases, but most notably was the Hillside Strangler, mm. another one on my list to cover. Mm-hmm. It was Frank who found a tiny piece of thread in the first victim's eyelid that was matched to fabric used to upholster furniture and would ultimately help unlock the case back in 1978. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. Spoiler alert. Yeah, I know. For a future episode. I was thinking that and I was like, all right, I'll leave it vague enough because I actually don't know all the detail and I don't know how it unraveled. But um, anyway. No pun intended with the piece of string. Oh, oh, wait, wait. Oh, shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, there's there's one more button. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. Oh my God. Oh, well, I'm blushing. That was oh, funny. That okay. was hilarious. Anyway, Frank was just slightly smaller than Gil at six foot two, two hundred and twenty pounds. In addition to his detective skills, he was also an avid sportsman who loved to hunt and fish. He stayed in great shape, swimming every day in his pool. Frank had married his high school sweetheart, Jane, and the two had also had three children, Terry, Frank Jr., and Michael. Together, Gil and Frank, who both believed they were going to be looking for more murders connected to Dale and Veronica's killer, began listening to police reports for similarities while digging into the investigation. Did they connect the dots to Jenny? Not yet. Okay. Nope, because that was in June of 84, and these murders happened in March of um, 85. So okay. they just had no reason to connect to that one. Right. But at the end of March, they had a lead. Gil read a report of a man in black who had followed two young women and then tried to get one of them into his car. The man was tall and thin with dark hair, just like Maria and the other witnesses had described. Was it Johnny Cash? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no. Is that tall, dark, and handsome? No. Man, the man in black. Oh. Okay. <laughs> mm, and it's it's not just movie references I miss, my friends. <laughs> it's all of the all references. Of the, references. <laughs> the L.A. Sheriff's Office named Paul Samuels as their prime sus- suspect and began surveillance on him. They bought so many words that are not the words I wrote down on the paper. <laughs> they brought a picture of him to Maria, who tentatively identified him. Police arrested Paul and searched his home, finding loads of porn and a 38, not a 22. Uh-huh. He was put in a lineup, but Maria and Jorge did not identify him, and he was released. Oh, this, like, this like random-ass dude was almost identified yeah. as the night star. Well, and Gil said, he sure is a freak, just not our freak. It's so, like his claim to fame. He's like, they thought I was the Night Stalker seriously? for like a minute. Yeah. The real Night Stalker was still on the loose. Mm-hmm. On the night of March 26th, the killer was driving around aimlessly, hungry for another exciting evening. Fucking psycho. Uh, I know. Although the actual murder was still thrilling, he had been disappointed in the last two attempts. Not only did he want to kill, he wanted to steal. That's how he made his living. While he was driving and thinking, he headed towards Whittier, a wealthy upscale neighborhood. By 2 a.m., he found what he was looking for. He stopped in front of the home of Vincent and Maxine Zazara. 44-year-old Maxine was a religious woman who volunteered her time doing the accounting at Trinity Baptist Church and singing in the choir. She lit up a room. Sure did. The Zazara's home was a one-story brick building on half an acre. It was picturesque with its white fence and fruit trees. Despite the late hour, a light shone through the large, uncurtained bay window. And your large, uncurtained bay window gives me anxiety that's behind me. <laughs> the one that your husband peeked through and made, made you lose your mind. Okay, like, but my opinion of curtains, um, I can see it both ways. I do understand that if I do not have curtains and I, it is light in my house that anybody can see me from the uh-huh. outside. But if I have the curtains closed, someone could be standing outside the window and I, mean, I would never know. I don't want to know. <laughs> you stay out there. I don't want to know that. That's fine. But isn't that weird if they're just like standing in front of your house, staring at your curtains all night? I'd rather that than someone seeing in than seeing them staring at me all night. Yes. Oh, gosh. You seem like someone who would leave your windows open. <laughs> okay. Speaking of, the man could easily peer in to see 64-year-old Vincent asleep on the couch. Looking into a second window, he saw Maxine asleep in bed. Aroused, he looked for his favorite method of entry, an open window. But each of of the Zazara's windows were closed and locked. Oh, good for them. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. This should really hit home for you. He walked around back to find more of the same until he spotted a smaller window a little higher up. Maybe a bathroom window or a laundry room or Marina's bedroom. (laughs) It was open. Mm. But it was too high for him to pry the screen off. So he grabbed a five-gallon bucket that had been sitting out in the backyard and stood on it. Dexterous. Nope. Dexterous. (laughs) Despite his gloved hands, he was able to remove the screen and he was in. I have a fucking five-gallon bucket in the back of my You hear that every killer, stalker, listener? (laughs) It's easy. You can see in her windows and you can crawl into her bedroom window. Leave me alone. (laughs) He took off his shoes, a pair of Avia sneakers, to move silently through the sleeping house. He walked into the living room, raised his twenty-two, and shot Vincent in the head just above the ear. I'm surprised that he uses a gun. Yeah. Like for what a psycho he is and for how passionate, I guess, he is about his Mm -hmm. crimes. 
He uses everything. Okay. Just you. Just wait. I mean, he started with the knife yeah. with Jenny, but mm-hmm. uh, but he s- switched over to the gun, and mm-hmm. I find that surprising. Yeah, he'll, he'll return to the knife. Don't okay. worry. All right. Mm-hmm. Somehow still alive, Vincent tried to get up and grab the gun from his attacker, but the bullet had severed his carotid artery, rendering motor movement impossible. Oh, my God. He was gushing blood and dying quickly. Maxine, who of course had awoken at the sound of the gunshot, uh-huh. was just getting her bearings, speaking of being awoken and right. not knowing what's going on, when the intruder entered her room, slapping her and asking her where the money was. She pointed towards her dresser. He tied her hands with one of Vincent's neckties, then began ransacking the drawers, putting whatever he wanted in a pillowcase. Maxine could hear her husband dying in the other room, that makes me just want to cry, and did not want their lives to end without putting up a fight. She knew she had a shotgun under her bed, and she just had to get it. Okay, so she see, she's a bad bitch. She is a bad because bitch. Because she has no other choice. Nope. She's amazing. Yeah. She was able to wriggle, wriggle out of the tie, reach under the bed, and point the gun at him right as he turned around. She pulled the trigger. Click. It was empty. No. Vincent had emptied out the shells because their grandchildren had been visiting that weekend. Oh, I can't even imagine the sensation you would have in the pit of your stomach when you pulled the trigger and nothing happened. The killer lost his mind. Oh, yeah. Yelling, bitch, motherfucker. He shot her with his twenty-two three times, knocking her back on the bed and killing her. Not having satisfied his anger about the fact that she tried to kill him, he went into the kitchen, got a 10-inch carving knife that he used to try to cut her heart out. What the fuck? Unable to get through her rib cage, he settled on taking her eyes as he believed that they were the window into one's soul. Dear God. Mm-hmm. Carefully and quickly, he removed both of her eyes and put them in a jewelry box he stole and then stabbed her in the stomach, throat, and pelvis for good measure. Wait, he brought the eyes with him? Yes, he did. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. He also tried to have sex with her body, but was too jazzed up from the experience that he couldn't perform. So he ended up taking the remaining v- valuables and a few guns and fled it was an employee of vincent's who had the misfortune to find the murdered couple bruno polo was responsible for bringing the receipts and money from vincent's pizzeria to the zazara home each week he arrived at their house that evening observing that the front door was partially open and that no one answered when he rang the doorbell he decided to come back the next morning when nothing had changed he thought he'd better call for some help but not sure it was serious enough to call the police yet, he called a coworker who agreed to meet him at the house. Knowing someone was on the way, Bruno decided to go in. He saw Vincent on the couch, at first thinking he was sleeping, but as he got closer, he realized he was seeing blood and that mm. Vincent was dead. Bruno ran back out, told his coworker what he saw, and the two called the police. I hope neither of them saw Maxine. I don't think they did, which is, I mean, I'm sure it was traumatic enough seeing Vincent, but. Oh, uh, yeah, but. I'm sure Maxine was a whole nother yeah. ball game. Yeah. So the report from the Zazara murders made its way to Gil and Frank's desk, who were immediately interested, especially by the use of the 22. Upon investigation, they couldn't confirm that the bullets used in the Zazara murders were the same as those from Dale's and Veronica's. They had previously tracked down the car used by the killer, but that wasn't dusted for prints, so there was nothing to match, even if there were prints found in the Zazara home. But the match they could make was to a shoe print found outside of the Zazara home. It was those same Avia sneakers as the ones identified in a different set of assaults, not murders. We didn't talk about them. Hmm. Gil was convinced this was the same person. Frank thought it unlikely, but was willing to pursue it. 
how popular were Avia sneakers back in not the 1980s. Very, and we will talk all sort of about all about it, but not at all. It, okay. it's, it's actually a very important part of the case. That's okay. Great. So good, good question. Thank so you. Together, Frank and Gil went to their captain, Bob Grimm. And yes, that is spelled with two M's like your favorite podcast. <laughs> captain Grimm trusted Frank and was willing to take a chance. Okay, I love that. I Cap- know. Captain Isn't it amazing? Grimm. He had Frank and Gil assemble a team and the men began their hunt in earnest. Knowing the locations of his most recent crimes would be crawling with police presence, the killer chose the hide-in-plain-sight method and returned to Monterey Park, where he'd attacked Veronica Yu. On May 14th, in the middle of the night, he parked on a quiet street and walked. Slowing, he eventually stopped in front of the home of Bill and Lillian Doy. Clutching his new weapon, another twenty-two, he knew he could be traced with the one he'd used for his previous attacks. He went around to the back of the house, finding an open window. He sliced the screen, reached in, pushed the window up, and slipped inside. You're making me real sad about my windows yeah. because I like a nice, I like a nice autumn <laughs> breeze through my window. Not anymore. No. Nope. 66-year-old Bill was sleeping soundly down the hall from his wife, Lillian. Bill had recently retired from his job at the Santa Fe Trail Trucking Company as an international sales manager. Born in Salinas, California, he had a Japanese heritage and had actually been put in an Arizona relocation camp during World War II. Oh my gosh. But after he was released, he joined the army, which in and of itself just says a lot about him. Mm -hmm. After the service, now married and with a young daughter, he attended Northwestern University while working as a shipping clerk. It was through his hard work and networking skills that he worked his way up to the corporate ladder. He loved to play golf and was a big Lakers fan. He and Lillian had one grandchild whom they adored. And they cared for each other as well. A few years earlier, Bill had had a heart attack. Although his health was improving, it was tough, considering Lillian had had a debilitating stroke two years before. Despite that, Bill had just put a down payment on a brand new van he was planning to use to tour the country with Lillian. Okay, if I work my whole life and then someone almost immediately murders me, I am going to haunt the shit out of them. This this one, okay, literally every single one of these um, victims is disturbing, but this one... I'm going to say this before every single one. This is so disturbing. On that night, the intruder quietly entered Bill's bedroom, raised his gun and cocked it. Bill woke up instantly and grabbed for his own nine millimeter. He was extremely security conscious and immediately recognized the sound of the gun as trouble. Not wanting to risk his victim getting one over on him like Maxine had, the killer shot Bill just above the upper lip. Bill, again, alive, but barely, fell from the bed. The intruder tried to shoot him again, but his gun jammed. He rushed forward and beat Bill relentlessly, kicking him and punching him with his gloved hands. Lillian could do nothing but listen, helplessly and unwillingly, to her husband being attacked in the other room. With Bill down, the killer went into Lillian's room. Unable to speak and with limited ability to move from the stroke, I literally cannot imagine the utter fear this poor woman must have been feeling. He slapped her to get her to stop crying, bound her, obviously not knowing it didn't matter anyway, Mm -hmm. and then left the room to search for valuables. He came back to find Bill having regained consciousness, so he beat him mercilessly. Oh my God. With Bill out again, the killer went back into the terrified Lillian's room where he violently raped her. Oh, Lillian. He tied her up. uh, He left her still tied up, grabbed his loot, and left. Bill came he left to her again. alive. Yes. Okay. And Bill came to again. He, Bill was not dead. Oh somehow, my gosh. Somehow he managed to crawl to Lillian's room, saw what had happened to her and that she was still alive 
and through just sheer determination got to the phone to call 911. But he passed out when the dispatcher answered. Bill again regained consciousness and used the last energy of his life to call a second time. When he got through, he could only say, help me. Oh my gosh. Fortunately, it was the time where they still had the enhanced 911 or they had the enhanced 911 system. So it got their address and police were sent. So when they arrived, they found that Lillian had used all her strength to get to the doorway of the bedroom, but just couldn't make it further. She couldn't tell them what happened, but pointed at Bill, who was somehow still breathing. The medics were able to stabilize him and get him to the hospital. But at 529 a.m., he succumbed to his injuries. Yeah, I, I, it, I was just going to say, it blows my mind, which that is not the right phrase to use when I'm talking no, about gunshots no. to the head. No. I just, it's unfathomable to me that you can be shot in yes. the head. Yes. And survive. It actually reminds me of um, Pettit. Uh, what's his first name? William. William had it because he just had the absolute shit beat out of him and he was still right. just determined to do what he could. He lost like all of his blood. Yeah. Ugh. Um, oh my gosh. Just awful. Meanwhile, investigators canvassed the residents and found the sliced screen as well as a shoe print, which they later, they plaster cast and identified as an Avia sneaker. Gil was called about the case a few hours later, but when he arrived on scene, the officers felt he was infringing on their case. So Gil pushed as much as he could, but eventually left. They hadn't told him about the shoe prints or the screen, so he really had no idea that this could be connected to the other murders. No, 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 no. You got to work together, guys. Nope, not interested. Wow, I do, I do appreciate that the uh, murderer switched out his guns, but not his sneakers. (laughs) He just had—I mean, he had no idea. Yeah, Um, yeah. Nope, but he—he did switch out the guns. Mm -hmm. On May 29th at 11:40 p.m., the killer entered the home of his next victims. 83-year-old Mabel Bell lived with her 81-year-old sister, Florence, on the outskirts of Monrovia on the northern edge of L.A. These poor elderly people. And it's, I will say he actually isn't specifically targeting them. It's like random that he keeps finding these very old people. Yeah, and we'll talk about it later too, but they're all beige houses. And that's also at least not a conscious decision. Oh, um, Ma Bell, as she and Nettie, as they were known, uh, oh. had chosen the house for its remote location. Ma Bell, in particular, felt that their isolation was their security and often left her front door unlocked. Ma Bell took care of her sister, who was in much the same condition as Lillian Doy. Ma Bell was highly independent, driving to town to run errands and play bridge three times a week. She had moved to California from Oklahoma 35 years earlier. She worked as a secretary for the Veron's Tool Company for most of her career, having been widowed at an early age and bringing up two children without help. She loved God, her country, her children, and her 12 grandchildren. I thought you were going to say in her 12 gauge. (laughs) (laughs) She probably did. (laughs) That night, the killer silently opened the sister's front door and walked slowly through. How does he know the door's unlocked? Or he just like randomly picks? Oh, God, I'm so mad. He believes, and we'll get way into this when we talk about him in more detail, but he believed he was being led by Satan. And I got to tell you, there's got to be some truth in that with how, how he found people, how he got away with this for so long. So he first looked in Nettie's room, disappointed to find yet another elderly invalid. After oh. also seeing Ma Bell, he became frustrated. Not only were these not the young women he preferred to attack, but they didn't appear to have anything valuable he could steal. He went into the kitchen to get a knife, but couldn't find one to his liking. Angry now, he grabbed a hammer, 
went straight to Nettie's room and violently struck her in the head repeatedly. Oh, Nettie. Feeling slightly better, he grabbed the clock from her nightstand and tied her hands with the cord. He left Nettie's room and headed for Ma Bell's, not realizing he'd left a bloody shoe print on the carpet. Those damn Avia sneakers. Mm-hmm. In the older sister's room, he struck Ma Bell in the head with a hammer. She began screaming at him to get out of her house, but yeah. he hit her again, obliterating her head. Oh. He grabbed duct tape and bound her. Then he Why? grabbed... I don't know. Um, but then, th- then you can ask the same question with this. He grabbed the cord from her alarm clock, frayed the wires, and then used the cord still plugged in to shock her. And she was actually still alive. Why? Mm-hmm. Again, aroused by his activities, he went back into Nettie's room and brutally raped her. Oh, my God. Pleased with himself, he went into Ma Bell's room, grabbed red lipstick off her dresser, and drew a pentagram on her thigh and the wall above her bed. He went back into Nettie's room and drew a a pentagram on her wall, too. And then, like the times before, he gathered a few meager valuables in a pillowcase and left. I'm, I, I, Mm -hmm. I I just, I don't Mm -hmm. have any words left anymore. I know. It's okay. We'll get there. The next evening, the killer was again cruising out on the highway. The stolen Toyota was now in police custody, so he was driving the stolen Mercedes he'd used to get himself to Ma Bell and Nettie's house. In the early morning hours of May 30th, he found himself in Burbank on the other side of L.A. He stopped in front of a nice-looking beige stucco house with a big bay window on the front. Are you changing your mind yet about your window? Mm. Okay. Mm. He got out and walked around, trying the doors and windows, but they were all closed and locked. Almost ready to try another house, he spotted a doggy door. No! He reached in and up and was able to unlock the door with his gloved hand. I don't have dogs, so... (laughs) No doggy door. (laughs) I have that one thing going for me. Yeah, that's right. They're already in your house. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) He found his way to the bedroom of 42-year-old Carol Kyle, who was still sound asleep in bed. Putting the gun to her head, he yelled, wake up, bitch, don't scream or I'll kill you. I would immediately scream. Yeah, same. He asked her who else was in the house, to which she replied her 11-year-old son. Oh, no. He dragged her out of bed and down the hallway to her son Mark's room. He had her lay down on the floor while he flung the boy's door open, ran in, and put the gun to the child's head. Despite his threats, Carol ran in after him and threw herself between him and her son. Frustrated, the intruder just dragged them both out into the hallway and put them in a closet. He kept them there while he ransacked their home for any valuables. When he was done, he came back and pulled Carol out of the closet, asking where the rest of her valuables were. When she said they didn't have much, he roughly stripped off her clothes, then pulled his own pants down and made her perform oral sex. No. Afterwards, he violently raped her and then sodomized her several times. When he was done, he went into the kitchen for a drink, then came back and told Carol he was going to bring her son in. She begged for him not to see her like this, and surprisingly, the man threw a nightgown at her, let her put it on. He then went and got Mark out of the closet, cuffed them both to the headboard, and left. Oh my God. I was going to throw up if you told me that he killed them. Nope. I mean, I was going to throw up anyways, and I was afraid that something was going to happen to poor Mark. I think, I think plenty happened to Mark because it's, I don't, I think he knew everything that was going on while he was in that closet. But he's alive, Mm -hmm. scarred for the rest of his life. But so once the killer was gone, it was actually Mark who was able to reach the phone to call 911, but the killer had cut the cord between the headset and the receiver. 
However, it, that didn't really matter. The call still would go through. Right. And again, that enhanced 911 system picked up their address. Police arrived and helped the terrorized family, but they were unable to find any fingerprints. Investigators worked with Carol to draw a sketch of the intruder, but it looked nothing like the one created by Maria Hernandez. Oh God, I would be so bad. I'd be like, they had eyes. Seriously. They were were scary. Yep. And nose. There was a nose. Yes, exactly. It it reminded me of, what was the Humpty Dumpty sketch? Oh my God. It was like, just like an egg shaped with no features whatsoever. That would be my description. (laughs) I'd be like, it's a person (laughs) of the male variety. (laughs) Now, these crimes were not yet connected to those of the previous day because Ma Bell and Nettie had not yet been discovered. Their 78-year-old gardener and handyman, Carlos Valenzuela, had been by the day after the attacks and rung the bell, getting no response. He came back the next day, still no answer. And finally, on June 1st, he still got no answer at the door and noticed that the sisters hadn't picked up their newspaper for several days. Worried, he opened the door and called for them. Mm. He came across Nettie, whom he believed was dead. He ran out and drove down to the neighbors, because remember, they're pretty remote, and called 911. When the police arrived, they found Ma Bell first. Amazingly, she was still alive, despite no. the visible brain matter protruding from the left <gasps> side of her head. She was comatose, which I definitely think was a blessing at that point. Oh, When they came across Nettie... She, too, was comatose with parts of her brain exposed. Oh, my gosh. It gets worse. The bindings... How? <laughs> well, just keep listening, my friend. The bindings that the killer had put her in were so tight that they'd caused her hands to swell beyond what her skin could handle, causing the backs of her hands to split and bleed. Oh. Both women were brought to the hospital, but Ma Bell would die three weeks later from her injuries. Oh, my God. Investigators noted the footprint in the blood, but not that it was the same of Via Brand as those found at the other crime scenes. Between that and the fact that there was no forced entry, nor was a gun used, Frank and Gil were made aware of the crime, but weren't sure if it was connected to their killer. Another escape by the Night Stalker. Do you know why this is worse than the Toy Box Killer? Because you spared us the details I told of you. Yep. the Toy Box Killer thankfully because yep. I, that i mean i've heard some of those details and same it just, it just yep. i don't want to and that would be why i gave you warnings in different languages at the mm. beginning because it is it's gruesome I, it, it there's no words i'm gonna leave now okay well you can't do that <laughs> patty elaine higgins was a 28 year old teacher at the braddock school in arcadia california that would be the same Arcadia where Peabony number t- number eight takes place. So you can go check that out. The case of Jeannie Wiley. Um, we deemed that one interesting. Oh, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. There was construction happening in the lot next door to Patty's house. And the foreman of the site, Don Bonelli, had asked Patty if she would be willing to run an extension of her phone line for him to use during the job. Because remember, 80s, mm-hmm. no cell phones. Yep. Ever the helpful, kind person, Patty readily agreed. Around the same time as Ma Bell and Nettie's tortured bodies were being brought to the hospital, Don heard Patty's phone ringing incessantly. He decided to pick it up. It was someone from the Braddock school looking for Patty as she hadn't come in and hadn't called out. Oh, no. The woman asked if he would please check on Patty, to which he agreed. Don walked over, seeing nothing amiss in the front front of the house. He walked around back and saw a broken window pane in the back door, which itself was ajar. Cautiously, Don walked in, calling for Patty. He received no answer, so he proceeded slowly. 
It was evident that the house had been ransacked, and just after just a few steps, he saw Patty on the bathroom floor, clearly deceased. Mm. Someone had beaten her and nearly decapitated her. My gosh. Don ran back outside, got on the phone, and called 911. That's not like him to break the window, though. No. No. Nope. Mm-hmm. So Frank and Gil happened to be on rotation when this call came in to the homicide department, so they went to take a look. Now, seeing, although that was abnormal, seeing Patty's injuries, they immediately suspected it was their man. Mm-hmm. But again, suspicion was all they had. So as you said, it wasn't the screen. Um, they had no fingerprints. There was no use of a gun and no sightings of the now distinctive of the uh, shoe prints. Hmm. Another night, another aimless drive. It was several weeks later, now July 2nd. His theory of hide in plain sight had worked last time, so he decided to try it again and return to Arcadia. He took a random exit, drove a few blocks, and parked. He got out and walked, knowing he'd eventually find what he was looking for. Even in the dead of night, it was oppressively warm. He finally stopped in front of the home of Mary Louise Cannon. Mary was a 75-year-old widow who now lived alone in the ranch-style beige house. Mary was an impressive woman who had lived a full life. She was born on a farm, attended business school, and then married a horse trainer with his own business. Her education allowed her to balance the books for this business, and the two lived well. She fought cancer twice and had five grandchildren whom she loved immensely. Okay, that makes me so mad. (sighs) I know. I know. That's why I included it. And she was looking forward to a trip to Australia in a few weeks, although she was currently laid up from a car accident the day before. That night, the lights in the house were all out. The night stalker walked up to the front of the house, pulled a screen off, and opened the window, crawling silently inside as he had done so many times before. He walked slowly through the house to to Mary's bedroom. He grabbed a vase from her dresser and slammed it down on Mary's head. She screamed, but he punched her, knocking her out. He then went to the kitchen to grab a knife and returned to Mary, thrusting the knife into the side of her neck. Mm. He twisted it and turned it and stabbed her again and again as the life ran out of her. It was over as quickly as it had started. So as was his MO, he grabbed a few valuables and left. Was this all relatively in the same area? Yes. These were all like in LA County. So Was this all over the news? Like were people panicked? Yes, but they weren't connected yet. The only like two of them were connected and they weren't like, we'll talk a little bit about the, um, the public reaction and how the police were addressing it and all that. So they were reporting on the murders, but a lot of them were just an unsolved crime okay but statistically was it not more crime than usual i don't think so la yeah i don't actually think it was okay the next morning mary's neighbors christine and frank starich got an early work uh, an early start on their yard work because it was going to be a hot one as they were working on the yard near mary's house christine noticed the screen lying on the ground Frank suggested he could put it back on the window. The Starches informally looked after Mary, doing little things around the yard and house for her. So that was the norm. As Frank was working to get the screen back on, he noticed that the fasteners were bent. So he grabbed a hammer and was banging on the frame against the house to straighten them out. And he and Christine were a little surprised that the noise hadn't gotten Mary's attention. And then this made them realize that her paper hadn't been picked up yet, which was unusual for their elderly neighbor who rose early. Mm-hmm. Christine had a bad feeling. She asked Frank to get their set of keys for Mary's house, and the two went over. As soon as they got the door open, they could see that the house was in disarray, so they went back out and called the police. When they arrived, officers entered the house and discovered Mary's brutally murdered body. It was still Frank and Gill's turn in the rotation, so they ended up being the first investigators on scene. 
And when they looked at Mary's injuries, they immediately noticed that they were the same as those found on Patty. There were no footprints outside of Mary's house, but they did find an impression on the carpet in Mary's bedroom. They couldn't tell off the bat if it was the Avia shoes, but it was roughly the same shape and size. So they Mm -hmm. had it photographed and cut out for analysis. Good. Looking around for more evidence, they found a bloody tissue that the killer had left a footprint on. And this one was clearly the Avia pattern. I'll give credit throughout this whole thing for Gil and Frank and Frank in particular, Gil, who really had his, he knew this was a serial serial killer from the start. And Frank with just his attention to detail on like, like even the, um, for the carpet, they were worried Mm. it would just no longer have an impression. So they got everything they needed and just incredible attention to detail that, that helped them through this case. Good. Now, they had evidence linking Mary's death to the Zazara murders, as well as those other assaults, and Mary's murder was also linked to Patty's via the knife wound. It was looking more and more like Gil was right, that they had a seriously dangerous serial killer on their hand. But I'm afraid you'll have to wait to hear more about that until our next episode. I am equal parts (laughs) sad and relieved that you're done today (laughs) viciously assaulting my ear holes for the evening i know there's no nice way to tell this story um no but i mean again like all the victim stories like for you to give all the details about their life and for just to talk about them you know we all know his name but yes you don't always know theirs exactly and that's why i decided to split it out because i could have gone like you know roll call style and gone through each one Mm -hmm. but um because of the work that philip carlo the author of that book had done to get the detail in there right um again there's way more even in that but i wanted to include who these people were what they were doing with their lives at that time and um just wanted to share a bit about them in addition to the crazy awful crimes I'm riveted by your storytelling. It's making me want to throw up as well, but I'm riveted by it. (laughs) Wonderful. That's what we aim for here. (laughs) Riveting vomit. (laughs) Speaking of, if you're enjoying Grimm, uh, make sure you're getting the most in between episodes. You can find us on Instagram at Grimm Crime Podcast and on Facebook, searching Grimm, a true crime podcast. Or even better, as we mentioned earlier, you can subscribe to our Patreon by searching Grimm, a true crime podcast on the Patreon app or website. Despite the tear you, I'm, the words, they're so hard today. I know. Depending on the tear. (laughs) You got this. You got, you got, you you know what? I told you guys already. Just, uh, you can get a bunch of stuff. You can get a shout out. (laughs) You can get bonus episodes. You can get the discord, all that jazz. You can also send us an email at grimcrimepodcast.gmail.com and you can send us case suggestions there or DM us. Or if you're on the discord server, as Marina said, we get suggestions there too. Wherever you do listen, please rate us or even better, leave a written review. We do screenshot those and share them and send lots of love emojis back and forth about it. Mm -hmm. But no matter what, thank you for being here. And remember to listen, learn, and stay alive until next time, because the future is grim. 